For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Welcome to The World Shapers, conversations with science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. I'm your host, Edward Willett, and this episode's guest, Robin Stevens-Pays. Welcome to episode 126 of The World Shapers, the podcast where I talk to other science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. My name is Edward Willett. I'm your host. I am also an author of science fiction and fantasy. My most recent novel is The Tangled Stars, a far future outer space heist adventure, uh, humorous, uh, and it has a talking cat, AI uplifted, who becomes a starship captain. So you want to check that out. It's from Daw Books. It's my 12th novel from uh, Daw Books, The Tangled Stars, available in ebook and audiobook. I'm also a publisher. I publish uh, books through shadowpawpress.com. Uh, there are two imprints. There's Premiere, which is for new work, and then there's Reprise, which is uh, new editions of previous uh, notable work, previously published work. Uh, there's quite a bit of science fiction and fantasy in that mix, but I publish other stuff as well. My most uh, recent published uh, original books are Thickwood, which is a historical novel that combines uh, horses and women's professional baseball. I highly recommend it. Thickwood by Gail M. Smith, and The Emir's Falcon, which is by Matt Hughes, who is a science fiction and fantasy writer, but this is not a science fiction or fantasy book. It's a young adult book set in uh, uh, Swan Hills of Alberta, and uh, it's an outdoor adventure tale, I guess you would say. Uh, I also have, uh, on the reprint side, uh, two books are out uh, this month, in fact. <laughs> I can't believe sometimes how quickly I get them out. Um, one of them is Backwater Mystic Blues, which is a second collection of essays by Lloyd Ratzlaff, who's a Saskatoon writer. They're, they're really, uh, really nice essays, musing on nature and religion and, and things like that. And then there is a, another historical novel, which uh, was a winner of the Willa Award for Historical Fiction, and it's called Dolly Bird, set in Saskatchewan in 1906. And I also highly recommend that. It's by Anne Lazurko, who's from my old uh, hometown of Weyburn, or she farms near there. Anyway, so all that's through Shadowpaw Press. You can find that at shadowpawpress.com. Shadowpaw Press, of course, is also where I publish uh, Shapers of Worlds, the anthology series that features authors who were guests of this podcast. And uh, Shapers of Worlds Volume 3 came out in October. Uh, it's available now in ebook and hardcover and softcover and, uh, yeah. You, you can find that everywhere, Shapers of Worlds Volume 3. The previous two volumes, of course, are also still available. And coming up in March, uh, not too long now, as this goes live, I will be launching the Kickstarter for Shapers, uh, Shapers of Worlds Volume 4, featuring my fourth-year guests. Um, so there'll be a lot more information about that a little bit down the road, not too far down the road, as I start to uh, talk about that. And I'm uh, collecting backers' rewards now from the various authors and uh, Looking forward to launching that uh, Kickstarter. Hopefully it succeeds as the previous three have. And Shapers of Worlds Volume 4 will be out from Shadowpaw Press uh, this uh, fall. And uh, the guests I'm talking to now are in my fifth year. So if that goes ahead, then about a year from now, I'll be talking about the Kickstarter for Shapers of Worlds Volume 5. And the guests that I've talked to recently will be invited to be part of that, including today's guest, and it's time we got to her, Robin Stevens-Pays. 
Robin Stevens-Page is the author of four novels for middle grade to YA readers. She offers workshops on storytelling and is in the process of launching a company that focuses on relationship solutions for mothers and their teen daughters. She was founding editor-in-chief of Learn Now, an online publication on the science of learning, and has written for the American Leader, Discovery Education, the National Girls Collaborative Project, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She lives around the D.C. Beltway in Maryland. So, Robin, welcome to the World Shapers. Thank you, Ed. Nice to be here. Nice to have you on. Uh, I was uh, intrigued, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but, uh, of course, one of your focuses with the, the books we'll be talking about, uh, the Edge of Yesterday series, is on uh, promoting uh, uh, STEM learning in girls. And my wife is an engineer, so that's right up my alley here. <laughs> um, so we'll start, uh, as I always say, by, by taking you uh, back into the mists of time. Um, and I don't know how far back that is for you. It's getting further back for me all the time. So where did you grow up, and how did you get interested in writing and, uh, well, all the things you do? How, t tell me about yourself. Okay, sure. Well, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, I have always sort of had a creative bent, shall we say. Um, growing up, I, was, I did a lot of acting and dance and all of those theater kinds of things, and and I, and I would have stayed in theater in that realm. In fact, may may go back to that by writing a uh, uh, a, a play version of the series. Um, but I found out I had a lot more power if I was the one writing rather than portraying someone else's words. And so that intrigued me. But I didn't really. I wouldn't really have called myself a writer until um, my junior year in college, I studied French, of all things, French and theater in, in college. And I spent my junior year abroad in France studying there. And that is really when and where I learned to write was in French, not even in English. So that was kind of a revelation. Um, yeah, so French was um, a better way for me to learn the structure and grammar of writing in a way that I didn't learn it in school um, as, a, as a high school or college student. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, what, what was the impact of, <laughs> of writing in French to begin with? Um, yeah. Well, um, I, I love, I've always loved French and, and had, had studied it in one way or another since like third grade. <laughs> um, and then majored, as I said, in college. And I always, I always had an affinity for the French culture and language and literature and all that food, all that good stuff. Um, but it was really an eye-opener to me that learning the structure of a foreign language, it might have happened also if I'd studied, I did study German a little bit and if I'd studied a different language, but just getting into the actual structure of the language where the rules are followed more often than they're broken, unlike in English. <laughs> And it gave me the foundation to be able to write first in French. And then, of course, when I came back after my year abroad, I um, got much more into writing in English as well. Well, when you were growing up, I mean, for most of us, uh, a big influence on why we eventually started writing was also because we were doing a lot of reading. Were you a big reader as a young person? Huge reader, huge reader, of course, growing up. Uh, and I read I read a lot of everything. I loved uh, uh you know, when I was young, I loved series, as many young adults do. And um, and I also, of course, loved science fiction. I've always been intrigued by science, um, but I was not a math person. So when science got beyond the conceptual into the proofs, <laughs> I had a hard time with that. But what I found out is I could come back to the science through my fiction and somehow even if I didn't have advanced calculus or trigonometry skills under my belt in a good way, I could understand and translate the language into kind of everyday language that anyone could understand. When you were doing all that reading, as a, as a, were there any particular books that, that uh, were influential uh, looking back? Yes. So... Um, I know this is going to sound weird, but when I was uh, sort of in middle school, I was um, 
obsessed with Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and it is so not politically correct today, but I kind of hate that we have to be politically correct all the time, especially as a writer. Um, and if we get into talking about the new book that I'm working on, I can share a little more about how difficult that is going to be in many ways for me. But um, the idea of an independent, strong-willed, strong-minded protagonist in the character of Scarlett O'Hara was something I just had never encountered before. But she, you know, not the South, not slavery, God forbid, but the idea of the strong, independent-minded woman who was in many ways ahead of her times really appealed to me. And I think it was partly that exposure that really drew me into the story of and the history of the American Civil War and the South um, in a different way than learning it from history books. And so as someone who writes time travel, I would say time travel fiction, science fiction, um, I would say that that really turned me on to history in a way of interpreting it differently than the facts I was learning in history class. Uh, you live in Maryland now. Where Did you grow up in Maryland? Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I moved to uh, D.C. when I was in my 20s, a long time ago now. And I was working at that time um, for a nonprofit, for a, a women's organization. It was during the time of the uh, the equal the struggle for the Equal Rights Amendment here in the U.S. And um, so I was kind of involved in that. But I was more involved in that. In, I was the press secretary for this national organization. And I was more involved at that time in the questions of um, education for women and women's equity issues and um, then equal rights per se. Of course, the ERA never passed or there might be some dispute about that, but it's still a living question. Um, and I never really considered myself a strong feminist. I just considered myself someone who thought women deserved the same opportunities that men had. And I think that we've come a long way in that. And um, it's partly the reason why, you know, you mentioned that my books are about STEM learning, STEM and STEAM. So. STEAM is arts integration in yes. STEM. And um, my protagonist, uh, Charlie, is a strong-willed <laughs> young woman who has a lot of uh, goals and ambitions in her life. And, and I think that kind of all comes together in the character of Charlie. Going back uh, to when you were doing all the reading and, you know, did you write any when you were growing up? Was it a thing you did just for fun or did you have any inclination in Yes. Well, I, I did writing. Um, uh, I love to write. I've always loved to write. And I, I did write for myself. I had a, a journal for a while when I was young. I, I kept a journal when I lived in France that was very helpful. And, um, you know, growing up, I was always I was always writing and creating stories, uh, whether I wrote them down or not. Um, I would have liked to have shared a lot of those stories um, in, in print <laughs> at an early age, but didn't have that opportunity. And so it was really much later that I came to become a science writer. Um, and, um, again, translating those technical terms into language for everyday lay people to understand and sharing the knowledge that is imparted in science in ways that many scientists are not trained to do. Um, so, th so I became a, a, a writer in, in the field of science um, as an adult much later on. But yes, I was always writing something. <laughs> you know, I'm, I often start these podcasts by trying to find connections, and I wasn't aware of some that I'm hearing as I talk to you because uh, I was a science writer. I, I had a science column that ran for 20 or 25 oh. years in newspapers and and uh, wrote like <laughs> genetics demystified for McGraw Hill, where, for which I taught myself genetics. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I relate to that for sure. And the other thing is that I'm also, as a kind of a sideline, but I'm a, a, a like a professional actor, a member of Canadian Actors Equity. So I've done all that theater stuff as well. <laughs> so yeah, it's always funny to find those kinds of uh, connections. Kindred spirit. For yeah. Sure. 
So let's uh, let's uh, move on to talk about the uh, well the new book, which is Find Me in the Time Before, but also the, the Edge of Yesterday series. So is this your the first book in that series? Was that your first published fiction, or was there others in there? Find Me Before is the fourth book. Yeah, the first book is called Edge of Yesterday, sort of the keynote in the series, and um, that was your first published uh, novel. My first published novel was Edge of Yesterday, and the um, for the other two books in uh, well, I can give you a little thumbnail of the of the series and how it gets started, and that would explain how it rolls out in time. Oh. Um, uh, the there there other two books before Find Me in the Time Before. One is called Da Vinci's Way, as in Leonardo, <laughs> and the third one is called Saving Time. Uh, had you published any fiction, like short fiction, or? I have, yeah, I've published short stories. I had actually published a suspense novel uh, uh, that I wrote with my husband many years ago called Satan's Mortgage. It has nothing to do with young a and young young adult anything or science fiction anything. Catchy uh, title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It's a it's a suspense that takes place in New York in the nineteen nineties. It's a real estate <laughs> deep dive into sort of uh, the the dark side of New York real estate. <laughs> Very dark side if it's called Satan's Mortgage. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so fiction wasn't in, uh, writing fiction wasn't entirely new to you. Did you have you ever taken any formal training in it, or is it something you've just learned as you go? Uh, a little of each. I've I've taken workshops and classes. I've done uh, writing retreats. In fact, I'm going on a, another writing retreat this weekend uh, to work on this uh, fifth book in the series. Um, but I did not study writing in college, except in French, <laughs> as I said. So uh, so my writing comes out of reading, uh, just deep reading, <laughs> and and learning from other people and looking at the the writers and authors I've admired over the years and um, trying to adopt an original voice, but using the lessons of the best of the best. Did you do a lot of YA reading before you launched into writing YA? Were you familiar with the the field? Well, I'll tell you when my, when my kids were, my kids are all now adults, but when they were in, um, middle school and high school, I read along with them, <laughs> whatever was on the reading list, because it was just fun to dive back into that. Well, my daughter, who's now 21, but uh, she's, over the years, she would recommend things to me, so that's kind of how I kept up with on my daughter's recommendations, which is fun. I mean, it's fun to, to know what she's reading and to be able to discuss things with her uh, exactly. like that. Yeah. So great to connect that way. So let's uh, talk about then uh, the Edge of Yesterday series. Uh, again, we'll we'll focus on the most recent book, but I think we're going to have to get a description of the entire series. So a, a sure. synopsis, if you will, uh, of what the the series is about. Sure. So it it starts out that uh, Charlie Morton, a thirteen year old Steminista, I call her, uh, <laughs> who. Uh, finds plans at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. She lives in Maryland, too. She goes to the Smithsonian and finds uh, uh, one of Leonardo's notebooks, codices, on display, and she sees what she thinks are Leonardo's plans for a time machine, but he didn't have the science or technology to build it. So for the middle school science fair, Charlie decides to build a model of Leonardo's time machine, and there's a little romance and a bump and a kiss, and whoops, she triggers the time machine. (laughs) And jumps back 500 years across six time zones to land in an empty field at midnight under a hail of cannon fire and come face to face with Leonardo himself. Mm. I like it. That's how we start. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it's this continuing character throughout and she continues to travel back in time, I'm, I'm guessing? Well, she does. The first three books, as I said, all take place in Renaissance Florence. Um, She's a smart girl who's completely inappropriately dressed, but she has her one of her smart devices with her. She has a phone with her, and uh, well, talk about wanting to save your battery. <laughs> <laughs> she has a solar battery that she's had the foresight to put together—a makeshift solar battery. Good thinking. <laughs> 
and uh, she knows the future. And this is the Inquisition in Italy in the 15th century. <laughs> and uh, they didn't take too kindly to girls who could see the future or who knew more than they were supposed to <laughs> back in the day. So what was the, uh, this is the, the, the hoary old question, where do you get your ideas? But what was the impetus for the series as a whole? And then perhaps also for the the the, uh, the latest book in the series. So how does that work for you? Where do where does uh, inspiration come from? Yeah. So as I said, I'm, I'm I'm the mother of three kids, and as they were growing up, and I was the carpooling mom. You know, so you're invisible when you're driving them and their friends to soccer, right? <laughs> and they say things that they wouldn't say to you in person. <laughs> um, what struck me was all of these kids. You know, not just my kids, but their friends too, wanted to be. Uh, star soccer players and neurosurgeons and jazz musicians and diplomats and dentists and, and, and. They wanted to be everything. So it started as kind of a thought experiment. Uh, was there ever a time in history when, you know, in our, in our world, in our, in our reality today, we want our kids to succeed. So if they're not majoring in, you know, if they're not playing French horn in kindergarten, they're not going to get into the right school. They're not going to meet the right people, get the right job. They're not going to be a success. So we encourage kids to specialize very early. And I think that's unfair, given my exposure to my kids and, and what they wanted and what they loved to do and were passionate about. And so I just was sort of thinking back, was there ever a time in history when young people were encouraged to try new things, to do everything that they wanted to do and could really blend more than one thing so that they weren't specialists in a very narrow field to um, be able to follow their hearts. And of course, Leonardo da Vinci, the original Renaissance man, sprang to mind as the, the guy. <laughs> you know, he was an artist, a sculptor, an engineer, an architect, uh, an anatomist, an entrepreneur, a, an innovator, <laughs> you name it, he did it. And and of course, when I realized that my protagonist was going to be this young girl, Charlie, who wants to be a modern day Renaissance girl, has to find out Leonardo's secrets and how better to do it than to go meet the Renaissance master himself. It sounds like there would have been some research involved. A ton of research. Oh my gosh, yes. So. Um, I actually started this, um, the first book, The Edge of Yesterday, as um, it was really an exercise as a screenplay because I'd never written one before and I was just trying and I was taking a writing program at the time in screenplay writing. And so it started life as a screenplay. And I, uh, this was the early days of the interweb, so I'm aging myself here, but... <laughs> the early days of the internet and there wasn't a lot on it at those at that time but what there was to me was intriguing of course everyone knows of Leonardo as the the master painter and sculptor but um, as I could find more information about him online and in my research and at the library and in books I found out all of the other things that he mastered in his lifetime and how he was really inventing the future in a way that I don't think I know anyone at present, maybe a few exceptions we could think of, who could invent something that would actually come into being 500 years into the future. Um, but he didn't have the tools or technology to build, but he had the vision and the design capacity and the foresight to create. And uh, it's that mind that I was so curious about that I had to dig in really deep and do the research and travel and go to Florence. And um, and actually, I went to France a few years ago when it was the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death. He died in France under the patronage of King Francis I of France, Francois I. Uh, and I saw where he lived and where he invented and continued to innovate, even in and in the 15, 18, 15, 19, before he died. So that was quite an eye-opener for me. And um, I continue to discover amazing things about Leonardo da Vinci that uh, even reading uh, the, the latest biography, uh, 
that came out, uh, I guess, in about 2019 or 2020. Yeah, I read that one. Yeah, which was fabulous. I, I still don't think it explains how a Leonardo came to be, uh, or how how one would how one would recognize Leonardo today. And the and the contrary to that thought experiment that I was talking about a few minutes ago is that if Leonardo were to be born today in our society, could he even be Leonardo da Vinci? Yeah, he might have been, as you said, he might have been specialized so early on that <laughs> that the explosion of creativity was all focused in one specific area or or simply didn't happen the same way. That is an interesting exactly. thought. Exactly. And, and he, he would have been probably diagnosed as having ADD. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And held back in school. <laughs> he, had the, he had the great good fortune not to go to school because he was illegitimate. So he, uh, his father was part of uh, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici's court. He was a notary for Lorenzo, and uh, but he had this bastard child, and he Leonardo was not going to be able to go to school with the the nobility and um, it set him free to go and explore and sketch and draw. Uh, currents in the water, which later became his idea of currents in the air, which he couldn't see, but he speculated were there. And then later became the curls of Ginevra da Benci and Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. And so he really was so keen on observing everything around him. And um, I think that was part of the secret of his genius that we overlook and that we probably school out of young kids today. So that was the impetus for the series as a whole, and I guess it sounds like the first three books. Uh, mm -hmm. The new one, however, as you takes takes you to France or takes your young character to France. Yeah. So what was the, uh, the 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 seed for the fourth book? Why did you want to set it in the time when you set it? Sure. So now that Charlie knows how to time travel, and of course, spoiler alert, she does make it back home <laughs> <laughs> from uh, Renaissance Florence, and that's a whole a whole. Uh, trial by fire, shall we say, not to give too much away. Um, and she has to teach Leonardo about things like gravity and relativity to, so he can help her reverse engineer her time machine from a low-tech period <laughs> to <laughs> get back to today. Um, and now that she knows how to time travel, there's nothing to keep her in Maryland anymore. She wants to meet all of these polymaths, these geniuses. I don't really like that word genius because I think it's misleading in the way we use it, but the polymaths, people who are uh, talented at many things and learn all of their secrets. So I had heard, this was oh, a while back, there was a PBS uh, television documentary about the most famous equation in the world, which I'm sure you will immediately recognize as Einstein's relativity, E equals MC squared. And I was watching this documentary. It's based on a book um, by the same title. Um, and I heard in as part of the documentary that while he never credited her and maybe wouldn't have known her name, the actual innovation, the squaring of mass, uh, mass and uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking here, E equals MC squared, energy equals mass times. Speed of light speed of light, thank you. <laughs> the squaring of that equation was actually the innovation of an 18th century French woman who was a marquise who uh, translated Newton into French in an edition they still use today, who uh, laid the foundation for relativity, as I said, two centuries before Einstein, who was the consort of Voltaire, the mother of four, who um, gambled and dueled at the court of Louis XV in Versailles to earn money for textbooks and tutors after her father was out of a job. He had worked for Louis XIV until that king died. Um, so he was out of a job. She had to earn her own money to, to get further education. And as a girl with three brothers, it was not even clear that she would have except that her father recognized her brilliance. And this woman, Emily du Chatelet, was so far ahead of her time and so scandalous, even for our time, uh, that I had to learn more about her. And of course, Charlie did too. <laughs> so once you had the concept, uh, and this, this goes on as we can now talk about your creative process, 
Um, what kind of planning, outlining do you do for a book before you, you launch into the actual writing? Yeah, so I always start with an outline, and then Charlie tells me what she really wants to happen. <laughs> um, Characters so are I, annoying that way. Yeah, I know. I know. They have minds of their own. So, for example, in Find Me in the Time Before, I had a pretty straightforward time travel narrative where she was going to time travel back to 18, uh, sorry, 1736 in France and meet Emily du Châtelet, the adult who had already set up a laboratory uh, in her her home with Voltaire. They were science fair partners, if you want to use the modern vernacular. Uh, just uh, Voltaire was a big Newtonian and Emily not so much. So they have a lot of arguments about that. Emily du Châtelet is her name. Um, and uh, that was going to be pretty straightforward. But as it turns out, uh, Charlie had another thought in mind. And the first time travel, this is multiple uh, trips through time. The first time travel, she overshoots and she ends up in 1724 at Versailles, where Emily uh, was, a, again, as, as I said, dueling and gambling and, and being the young coquettish teen about Charlie's age, um, actually, at that point. And um, Charlie was not particularly interested in her, but there's a whole other character interaction with Charlie's best friend, who is a fashionista and has her own YouTube. She's an influencer on YouTube, has her own fashion channel. And um, so Beth, this time is her name. Beth time travels with Charlie, and Beth is just like in heaven, <laughs> in the court of Louis the Fifteenth, with all the fashion and of the time. But Beth doesn't believe in time travel, so she thinks it's all just a great dream. And Charlie is just annoyed because Beth and Emily are having a great time, and it's not at all the person who Charlie wants to meet. And so she is forced to come back to the present, her present, which would have been twenty nineteen, uh, in Maryland to get the right. Uh, GPS signal, if you will, to go to 1736 and this other location where Emily was living with Voltaire and her husband at the time. Hmm. And um, she again overshoots and ends up in 2020. And there's like a pandemic going on, which she knows nothing about. <laughs> and it causes all kinds of havoc, and including the idea that there is a Charlie in 2020 who is not the Charlie who's come back from 1724 uh, and she has to avoid meeting up with herself. So there's all kinds of trouble and run around to uh, avoid that big mistake that could obliterate both of them. How detailed an outline did you start with, even though it changes as things progress? Uh, Is it like yeah. multiple pages or just kind of a quick sketch? Or it's It's multiple pages. It's multiple pages. I usually start with a kind of a summary of what I think will happen. And then it, it, I, I sketched out chapter by chapter what I think should happen. And then, of course, Charlie took over. Uh, some chapters remained intact, but um, there's always something that I haven't anticipated that the story is called on to tell uh, that is uh, different than the outline. And then I have to go and revise. <laughs> I was going to say, do you actually revise the outline as you go along just to keep yourself... I do because I have track. to. Keep, I have to keep track of where and what time zone and what <laughs> what country and what she has with her and what the modern technology is and what the ancient technology is and she also has learned that in her time travels the way she can. I mean, this happened accidentally in the Leonardo part of the series, but um, she has learned that she has to have some kind of object that is reminiscent of the person who she is wanting to obsessed with meeting and um so we have to know where that is and what it is and what it looks like and where she has it is it in her backpack or in her <laughs> pocket or did she leave it at home or there's a lot of details to coordinate and luckily i have a fabulous editor who's been with me through the series who is so great at keeping track of all these details so she, she will tell me you know robin um charlie doesn't have her cell phone with her this time her smartphone with her this time it's back here. <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, those kind of continuity uh, things can really, uh, really trip you up. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they're easy to miss so that people will take things and you even see it in published work sometimes that people will take something out of a bag or something but wait a minute you left that bag back uh, <laughs> three pages ago you left it somewhere else and all of a sudden it's with you again so exactly exactly um, yeah. so what does the actual writing process look like for you are you a sit down at your desk for a certain number of hours a day? Do you write with a quill pen and parchment out under a tree? <laughs> or how do you like to write? I might try that. That's a great <laughs> idea. No, I, 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 when I'm in deep writing mode, I, I try to carve out um, maybe four or five hours in the morning on a good day if I'm disciplined enough to. And mornings are my best time to write because I feel fresher and can, can focus better than later in the day. And I can also prevent all the interruptions that come with email and phone calls and visitors and errands and chores and all of that. So I, I try to really just set up a schedule where I'm spending the morning uh, writing and revising and sometimes thinking about what I want to write that won't come out. Mm. <laughs> frustrated by that process. Are you a fast writer? Uh, I go in spurts. Sometimes I can be fast. When I'm really into a scene, I can really knock it out pretty quickly. Um, and then when things aren't coming, then I'm, I'm just sort of like, okay, maybe it'll come to me if I work on the next chapter and then I'll go back. Or maybe I'll just start over and revise what I've got so far. And then I can waste a lot of time doing that until I get to the part where I know what what really needs to happen to trigger the uh, scene that happens to uh, to advance the action. Yeah, I usually think of it, it's like, uh, I don't know, you're doing hurdles or something and you've, you've, you've approached this hurdle at the wrong angle or not fast enough and you can't get over it. So you go all the way back to the beginning of the, exactly. of the track and then you run forward again. And hopefully when you get there this time, you'll be able to clear it because you... I like that. I like that analogy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I've, uh, the, my most recent one, I had to sort of go back to the beginning a couple of times to get over one one hump that I had created for myself. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar yeah. with the do sensation. You, do you work with an outline when you write? I have a a fairly detailed synopsis. I wouldn't really call it an outline, but it's usually seven or eight single-spaced pages, mm -hmm. which I then don't look at again unless something goes horribly wrong in the writing. And then I go, wait a minute, what was I thinking and sometimes I'll go back and think, "Oh right, I already figured this problem out. I just forgot about it." So I'm not, yeah. a, I'm not a, not a very detailed outliner type. But mm. I've talked to authors, uh, Kendara Blake, uh, another YA author actually, uh, and she tends to just start with a good sentence and then run with it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's different, that's for sure. I admire that. Yeah. So what uh, you mentioned that you will sometimes go back and revise a bit. Um, mm -hmm. Do you? Typically, though, is it kind of a rolling revision, or do you end up with one draft and then you go back and revise the whole thing? And what does your revision process look like? Yeah, no, I, I think um, if, if by rolling revision you mean um, going back and uh, periodically throughout the process, as opposed to having a final draft and going back to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that that is definitely uh, the way I work best is um, is going back because again especially if there's been even a day in between where I couldn't work on a story, I have to refresh my memory of, of where things are and what time zone, and who's got them when, and if the phone is, if the solar battery is charging the phone or if <laughs> it's lost or that kind of thing. So I, I do, the rolling revision is really what I have to do for this, this series. How long are the books typically? Well, the, the first three books in the series are more for middle grade. They're for younger readers. And so they are around 150 pages, so around 39,000 words. Um, Find Me in the Time Before, because it's YA, it's for older teens, is actually a lot bigger. It's, uh, uh, it's about, a, I can't remember, I think it was about 80,000 words. So it's about 400 pages because also what I do, because I, I'm sure you will appreciate this as, um, as a world builder yourself. It's, it's really about uh, envisioning, not just depicting the, the world in words, but picking images that would go with it to enhance that. Because I find that for my readers, that is such a, this Gen Z is such a visual generation 
that it helps them to be able to not just read the words, but to see a picture or an image of what it is that they're looking at. And um, so all of the books have images in them. And the actual photographs or drawings or? They're fo mostly photographs, but some drawings. And um, for example, I mentioned Beth, Charlie's, we call her the BFOO. She's her best friend on and off because they, <laughs> fight, they fight a lot. Um, and Char because Beth is a fashion, fashion designer wannabe, she actually draws and sketches out these fashion designs. So some of them are sketches and most of them are photographs or um, you know, I do a lot of archival research, actually, to, to get historically accurate images. And, of course, with Leonardo, I had a lot of his doodles and drawings uh, in that part of the series. Uh, right. Just to bring to life how Leonardo's mind worked, how he thought visually. I suppose you're mostly dealing with stuff that's old enough. You don't have to worry about the nightmare of rights clearance that that would, I would think. Well, for the most part, yes. I have to say that um, this new book that I'm working on, which if we have time to talk about that, I'm happy to share, um, is going to take place in 1925 in New York in the Jazz Age and the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. And we're right at the cusp of having to worry about copyrights. <laughs> 1925, I, I have learned, is the cutoff. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that just uh, went public domain this uh, uh, this year, in fact, that's from about that time. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so once you have a, you've been revising it as you go, but at some point you have a complete draft. Is there yeah. then a start to finish revision? And how many, and do you use beta readers or any, anybody like that to get feedback? Yes, great question. Yes, there is a start to finish review and revision process, um, which is why I guess it takes me so long to write these books. And I do have beta readers. So um, as, I, as you mentioned in the intro so kindly, I do a lot of workshops and creativity and writing for young adults, for high school aged kids. And I also run a six week summer internship program uh, with DC public schools here in the area. And um, I have these uh, young people who I actually teach a form of narrative nonfiction or narrative journalism writing. I have a website that's interactive that extends out of the stories, um, but you don't have to even read the books to enjoy the website. It's at edgeofyesterday.com and they contribute. They become the content creators and help build out the worlds of each of the time periods that Charlie enters and they become my, my beta testers. So it's really particular all the slang, the emojis, you know, all of the the words that evolve so quickly in our in our social media age and the memes. And so they are really keeping me honest. They're really the ones who for the present day and for my present day characters are saying, oh, no, she would never say that. No, no. Uh, um, and so uh, that's how I keep in tune with the sort of the the mindset of this generation of readers who are, are my my readers for edge of yesterday yeah i was watching something with my daughter just recently and it was young characters maybe may even have been wednesday the the adams family oh, I, love wednesday, yeah. I do too but she was listening to some of the dialogue and he said you know it sounds like an older person trying really hard to say make the teens sound like they should as opposed yeah. to how they would actually sound. I said, well, that's, that's always a challenge uh, with writing for young, for young readers. Exactly. exactly. And it does date quickly. And uh, yeah. Um, yeah and there's, always, there's always that sort of balance that you have to find between making it too particular to the generation, because I went naturally, I went young people 10 years from now to also pick up edge of yesterday in the series. And so how do you do that without sounding dated, you know, at that point? Yeah, so minimizing the amount of current slang is often the way that that's done, I think, and people will yeah. keep it a bit more generic. There's some yeah. things that seem to last forever, like cool, so. <laughs> <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> Although perhaps when you're writing in the jazz age, it might have a different meaning. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, the, the bee's knees and the cat's pajamas and, <laughs> yeah. 23 skidoo stuff. and all that stuff. 23 skidoo, yeah. 
Um, so you have it all revised. It's all just the way you want it. It goes to an editor. What does the editor do in your case? Do you find that you get the same kind of editorial? We all have sort of things that editors say, you know, I keep telling you this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, um, Allison is my editor, and she is really good at keeping me um, focused on sort of the objects that are enabling the time travel or survival in a particular time period and where they are and what they look like and what Charlie's wearing or what Beth is wearing or how they're communicating with each other. So, um, so she's really good at tracking the details. She is also really good at helping me um, with the continuity in that I will, because I'm so caught up in the story, I will in my mind know what's happened between chapter one and chapter two, but not have written it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she's sort of like, well, Robin, <laughs> um, I think that there's a few dots you need to connect here. And uh, she will she will be really a stickler about getting me to actually write out what's in my head <laughs> when I've forgotten. Yeah, I think that's a very common one that because we're so familiar with our stories, we, well, you, you should be able to read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Why not? Um, and your publisher is? Uh, yeah, my publisher is Woodhall Press. They're a, an indie publisher in Connecticut and uh, relatively new and hungry and enthusiastic. And it's really a delight to work with them. So the first book came out when? The first book came out in 2017. And have you been pleased with the reaction? I have. I, um, as I said, I, I do a lot of these workshops and programs, and that's where I get the most direct feedback from readers. And it's really it gratifying. Can, it can be very direct from young readers. <laughs> very direct, but it's gratifying to hear them say, oh, yeah, I love this part in Edge of Yesterday. When I was reading Da Vinci's Way, I thought, oh, yeah, I didn't know that happened, and I was wondering. And, you know, it's very gratifying to hear that. And sometimes I will get that feedback that you mentioned before. It's like, you know, Robin, you're trying too hard <laughs> to sound like a young adult. And we don't really need you to, to, to do that. We, we need you to be authentic to the characters, but you don't need to soup it up with them um, with the latest language or the latest uh, trends, let's say. Uh, so they'll, they'll be honest with me. And, and that's important. And then sometimes they'll just tell me I didn't get it. <laughs> And then I have to figure out, mm, what what did I miss? So we then get into more in-depth conversations about what it is that I, uh, the way that I'm approaching my writing and the way that they're reading it. And I really find, I don't know if you found this, I, I, I don't think you write for young adults. but I, I do, I do. Oh, do you? So I don't know if you've ever found this or gotten this feedback, but... Um, especially since the pandemic, these young people, first of all, it's, as I said, very visual. They, they deal more in memes and, and um, emojis sometimes than they do in written text. And so um, going into a lot of detail for them is not something that they, their brains have been trained to do. And so they'll skip over a lot. And sometimes the details that I think are making it a richer story are things that they don't really care about. And so I, I try to take that feedback with a grain of salt because I'm going to write the books that I'm going to write, but I want my readers to appreciate them and I want them to love the characters as much as I do. Well, and read a subsequent books. So sometimes you're, yes, you're writing for those kids, but you're also writing for the kids who really, really appreciate that kind of depth and, and detail. So, you know, you can't, you can go too far in either direction, I think. Yeah, it's a balance for sure. Because uh, there's always the, you know, as we say, in, as I've said in the theater that sometimes you, sometimes the joke is just for that one person sitting at the back under the exit sign. <laughs> and you'll hear that nobody else laughs, but somebody at the back goes, ah, <laughs> and you think, there, that one was for you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so that's uh, the the new one just just came out. Yes, came out in the fall. Um, so before I get to what you're working on now, I'm going to go on to the big philosophical questions I warned you about. <laughs> 
Oh no. <laughs> which are uh, there? They are three. One is uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's philosophical or just a. You know, justify yourself, but why do you write? <laughs> why do you write? The second one is why do why do any of us write? Why do we do this crazy thing where we make up stories and put them on paper or, well, not necessarily even on paper these days, uh, for people to read? And then the third question is why fantastical stories involving time travel and things like that? Mm-hmm. So there's your there's your three big philosophical questions. Okay, all right. Why do I why do I write personally? Um, I, I write because um, I've always been a storyteller, uh, whether just verbally or in writing. And to me, it is the stuff that makes us human uh, because without our stories, who would we be? And sometimes it gets into another question if you, from a philosophical standpoint, with our stories, are we being true to ourselves? So I have to say in my own life, I have at times embraced a story as mine that might have really been my mother's for me, you know, really might have been what she wanted me to do or be or say or think. Um, And not, it took, would take me a while to sort that out because of course we're all the products of our parents growing up um, and their worldview and what they think will make us successful and safe and secure and um, protect us through life. And sorting that out to me is part of this, the, both the joy and the challenge of writing these books about a young, a young girl who is just coming of age, who is figuring out who she is and who is set and determined to be who she wants to be and not who her parents or her teachers or her best friend or her boyfriend want her to be. And so I, I think I write to figure that out. <laughs> And it helps me reflect on my own story too and and say, is this true for me? Is this true for me today? Maybe this is something that was true when I was younger, but maybe I've outgrown that story. So what's my new story? Somebody said, I can't remember who it was, that one of the keys as a writer was to eventually stop writing as if your mother is looking over your shoulder. (laughs) That that is great advice. (laughs) I'm going to use that. I'm going to quote that. Uh, um, so why? Yeah, do, that's why. That's why I write for me. <laughs> and why do? Why do we? And you've kind of answered this. And why you write for you? But do you think that's why we all write? Trying to figure ourselves out, or? Yeah, I think we do to figure ourselves out. But it's also that stories are what makes us human, and what makes humans separates us from, as far as we know, anyway, from other uh, sentient beings, whether it's our dogs or the birds outside, and um, it's. It's really the human story and history, which I also dive into with these time travel adventures, obviously, um, is really a a human form of being in the world. And it's also built into our brains. So, you know, you you mentioned that that I've been a science writer and I do a lot of uh, writing on neuroscience in particular. And studying how our brains work has really been fascinating and eye-opening to me. And it's really interesting to see both at the very basic level and sort of at the interrelationship, I don't know if that's a word, at the relationship level, um, how it's really our stories that bind us together. And there's really um, stuff going on in our brains that makes that, uh, makes that inevitable in a way. So I, I think we, we tell stories because we're human and because that's what our design tells us we need to do. Well, that being the case, why do we tell stories about things that have not and probably can never happen, like time travel and faster than light travel and ghosts yeah. and demons and all that stuff? Yeah, well, imagination to me, I think it was Einstein who said um, something to the, I don't have the exact quote, but something to the effect that um, Facts are important, but our imaginations can span the world multiple times. And so it gets us out of that narrow story of who am I and who am I in relation to you or my family or my children. or And it really gets us into the idea of who could we be and who do we want to be. And when I work with these young people and, and get them to tell their stories, uh, the intern program that I run and other workshops, I encourage them to 
think through to imagine they could be whatever and whenever they want and what would they want to know who would they want to meet and then to weave a story from there so to me that is why we do speculative fiction or science fiction time travel fantastical worlds and um it's to really uh get us to another level of uh, evolution in a way uh, although that might be too big a goal but you know what i mean sort of mental evolution anyway and you've already mentioned it but uh, what are you working on now so i'm working on the fifth book in the series uh, in the adventure and it's t- it's working title is struck by stars it takes place in the 1925 in new york city and it's about charlie's um getting ready to go to college she's writing her college essay and in fact she um not charlie but beth her best friend uses um chat gbt gpt to write her college essay for her oh, so really cutting edge here <laughs> really cutting edge. yeah i've actually played with it it's kind of interesting to see how that comes out and um she has always wanted since the leonardo time travel she has wanted to be a forensic anthropologist because she's now fascinated with the study of ancient bones and ancient cultures and um she comes across a cadre of letters which she finds in her attic of her victorian house where she has grown up and uh, in maryland and the letters are from an iconic author of the 20th century zora neale hurston uh, who um, perhaps your listeners will know has become um, very current um was a black woman who uh was an anthropologist and did folk anthropology in the deep south where she was from and captured really the voices of her um of of the her family her clan the people who who lived in the jim crow south the black people who lived in the jim crow south at the time and told their stories helped them tell their stories really brought their voices to life and um she finds these letters from Zora Neale Hurston to a woman named Annie Nathan Meyer a real person who founded Barnard College in New York and Annie had met Zora Neale Hurston at a big uh, banquet in New York City in 1925 because Zora Neale Hurston was then in Howard University a historically black college in Washington um and had written a, a short story for which she won an award and was brought to New York to a big uh society gathering in fact and um Annie was there and became enamored of Zora who was quite the personality and they started up a a um a relationship a friendship Annie herself was a writer and in these letters I don't have the letters from Annie to Zora but in these letters it's apparent that Annie Nathan Meyer this woman who founded Barnard College a college for women in New York City uh was asking the students or Neil Hurston for writing advice and uh to just understand that relationship and track it and also the way Zora wrote the letters was uh very un-PC in in our terms very unpolitically correct she was very self-deferential in writing to this society matron in New York um even though they had a friendship that grew later on and i just didn't understand her language or how she referred to herself as a black woman writing to this white society woman or how their relationship would work when the society woman was asking the student for advice and so i had to dive in i was just intrigued by the story and so in this these are actual letters that i have copies of and in this case i have given Charlie the letters in a a trunk that she finds in her attic as she's cleaning it out as one of her be- after being grounded as one of her uh, <laughs> penalties for being grounded and so now I'm diving into this story because uh Charlie is going to go to Barnard to visit college and Barnard and Columbia University where Zora studied got a master's degree actually um in anthropology have a strong anthropology department so it was just kind of a nice co- coalescing of 
ambitions. I didn't know anything about Zora Neale Hurston when Charlie told me she wanted to be a forensic anthropologist. So that's a little bit of synchronicity that I couldn't have predicted. And um, now I'm doing deep research. I just came back last month from New York. I was at Barnard in the archives doing a lot of research about this woman, Annie Nathan Meyer, and about Zora Neale Hurston. And this is going to be a really challenging book to write, Ed, but, um, <laughs> but I soldier on. <laughs> Do you have any sort of timeline for when it'll be coming out? Well, I've, I've actually gotten two um, grants for this book, and so I am under something of a deadline to at least get a good first draft underway by the end of uh, July. So that's my goal. <laughs> yeah, I just got a grant for something, and I'm feeling that same <laughs> pressure. Uh, yeah. So where can people find you online? So uh, my books are at edgeofyesterdaybooks.com, edgeofyesterdaybooks.com, and my interactive website where I have a lot of great content about all of these time periods and more is edgeofyesterday.com, and you can see some of the writing from my young interns and students. Uh, I've worked with over the years and also I have so it, it, there's there are two portals there there are two entryways into edgeofyesterday.com one is through the time travelers portal where you'll find out more about the worlds that Charlie's lived in and also she interviews all of her heroes of history including Leonardo and uh, Emily du Chatelet and Voltaire so you can see her interviews with her heroes of history and then there's also a second portal, which is called the Creativity Lab, which is you can find out more about my workshops and programs and things that I um, offer to help other people, both young people and adults, um, opportunities to further their own creative adventures and tell their stories. And any social media links to mention? Uh, all over, yes. I'm on TikTok, which is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Robin Stevens Pays at TikTok. I'm on Twitter at Robin Pays. I'm at um, Instagram, Facebook. I'm all over. So if you go to edgeofyesterday.com, you'll see all of the icons. You can click from there and get to my social media. And I'm very active on social media and I have a lot of fun there. I uh, provide what links I can on the web, the permanent web page for the interview as well. So I'll, I'll post those there as well. Fantastic. Great. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the the end of the time. And I uh, want to thank you so much for being on The World Shapers. That was, that was a great conversation. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you so much, Ed. It was great talking to you, and I hope we can talk again. And thanks again to Robin for a, a wonderful conversation. I, I very much enjoyed that one, and I'm sure you did as well. That brings us to the end of this episode of The World Shapers. Just a few housekeeping things to remind you of. First of all, you can find The World Shapers at theworldshapers.com. You can find it on Twitter at The World Shapers. You can find it on Facebook at The World Shapers. You can find me at edwardwillett.com, two T's on Willett. You can find me on Twitter at ewillett. You can find me on Facebook at edward.willett. And you can find me on Instagram at edwardwillettauthor and on YouTube at edwardwillett. Uh, and on YouTube, if you'd like, uh, you can walk with me around my home city of uh, Regina. I live stream my walks, which aren't quite every day. It's Currently, it's running about four days a week, but I'll probably pick up the pace if the weather improves. Um, yeah, so so check that out if you'd like to uh, walk around with me. And I, I often talk about what I'm working on writing and publishing-wise. Speaking of publishing, my I have two publishing companies now. The main one is Shadowpaw Press. That's a traditional publisher. You can find it at shadowpawpress.com. You can find it on Twitter at Shadowpaw Press, on Instagram at Shadowpaw Press, and on Facebook at Shadowpaw Press, and on YouTube at Shadowpaw Press. Not that I have much there yet. I have just started a hybrid publishing uh, operation called Endless Sky Books, endless-sky-books.com. If you are interested in that form of publishing where the author... Uh, uh, put some money in up front in exchange for uh, much, much higher royalties on sales. Uh, I am uh, doing some of that now as well. So check out that website at endless-sky-books.com. It's on Twitter at Endless Sky Books, and it's on, uh, without the hyphens, and it's on Facebook as well. You may have to search for it. Um, but anyway, it's just barely up and running, but it is out there now. And of course, I continue to do the World Shapers. I will be kickstarting... Uh, volume four of the Shapers of Worlds anthology featuring my fourth year guests in March, it looks like. I'm uh, working on getting all the stuff I need for that together now. So I will certainly talk about that again on here. You can find out more details uh, on Kickstarter uh, once it uh, gets set up. Or uh, or uh, I'll post information on the World Shapers site as well, of course, 
and uh, it'll be all over the place. I will do everything I can <laughs> to let people know when that Kickstarter is ready to go. Okay, that is the end of this episode of The World Shapers, and thanks for listening, and please come back many times in the future as I continue to talk to science fiction and fantasy authors who've created the wonderful stories that we enjoy reading so much. That's it for this time. Bye for now. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.